this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And this is episode number 14. 14! Wow. Can you believe we've made it this long? We call it the Jim Rice episode because that was his number. Oh, Jim Rice. I always think of numbers in terms of what members of the Red Sox back in the 70s. I do not think that way, but I do like Jim Rice. Yes. One thing I wanted to mention before we get started. Okay. (laughs) I have an app. Um, a GPS app I use, Waze. Yeah, they and you I don't hate, use it. and yet you use I it all the time. It. You have a codependent relationship with I, her. It, I should say. I don't need it to find my way around, but I do like because it alerts you to police up ahead. It's members you can put in if you pass oh, a that's car. Right, or, we today there was a chair. Trip. When I was driving here, there was a chair in the middle of the highway. Oh, my So I was cushion. able to put obstruction. Well, this was a whole chair, like a studio I wonder chair. if it was that. Yeah. It was probably a cushion from the chair that yes. you saw. But in any case, I didn't realize, I didn't like the voice on it, and I don't have the voice give me directions, but I do have, have a an, problem with women's voices. Yeah, I do, because they don't sound like my beautiful dulcet tones. <laughs> but you can have it so it, the voice comes on for alerts like police ahead or obstruction in the road or whatever. And this thing came up the other day that said, do you want to change the voice? So I pushed it, and it gave me a choice, and one of them was Keith Morrison <gasps> from Dateline. And it goes like, uh-oh, police ahead. <laughs> is, I can't, that, is that a free app? Yeah, oh, it is. I it is, W-A-Z-E. And I can't do a Keith Morrison imitation. But I Does he sound like sarcastic? Yes. There's a, uh-oh, it, it, police ahead. <laughs> <laughs> like he does I want that. So I, I, want just wanted to, I just wanted to mention that, even well, though it's not. Well, now, yeah. That's and we also have something new. As you know, we have a link to Patreon where you can become a patron or donor for this podcast and we finally because we do things in small increments yes got the mascots for each level or tier of donating up i Which think is crime dog crime dog crime buster and then the highest one is master criminal yes. and they are custom made original rebecca milliken art yes and they they're are. excellent you can go on our site and Check them out. And this week we'll be researching merch options. Well, we're gonna, we're definitely gonna have if you subscribe, like magnets, magnets, and we'll have some other stuff too. We're, Mm -hmm. we're still working it out. They are pretty cool. They're cute. So, so that's just a new thing that we have. And since we're cat ladies, they're cats. They're cats. Sorry, we are cat ladies. But I know women like cats. Oh, mom said because the crime dog (laughs) is a cat wearing a dog hat, and mom said. (laughs) <laughs> Mom said when she looked at it, that dog looks like a cat. <laughs> Did she figure out what it was? I told her what it was. And he has a little Sherlock hat on. He does. Or it's she. Cute. It's, cute. it's a she. she. I thought of it as a she. But in any case, do okay. we, we, we don't have anything to update, do we, from previous weeks? I thought I had something, but I can't think of it I can't now, think of so. anything either. So you're doing the topic tonight. Yes. And so why don't we just get started? Okay. Well, when we did the, uh, when I did the Jonestown uh murder suicide mass murder suicide we talked about the phrase drinking the kool-aid and we also talked about the phrase going postal and uh i said that maybe we would talk about that a later show so i decided and the time has come yes i thought i would because I, it had been a long time since i had thought and there about are it. an amazing amount there are amazing you'll see as we get going. i'm looking forward to it yeah while i was doing my research i found that there have been 22 shootings involving the U.S. Postal Service since 1975. Wow. And there were also two in Australia um, within the last 100 and years. that wouldn't be the U.S. Postal Service. Well, no, they were postal workers. I'm sorry. 
and one in Canada, which also wasn't the U.S. Oh. Postal Service, excuse me. But I'm, I'm going to go through a list of the shootings. There are too many to discuss in detail, so I decided to focus on the one that is generally cited as the basis for the phrase going postal. And it's also the one that's thought of as the beginning of the whole post office mass shooting phenomenon. And that is, it wasn't the first one though, but it was a big one. And it's, I'm talking about the shooting in Edmond, Oklahoma in 1986. Was that James Patrick Hurley? No. Okay. That he wasn't a postal worker. Oh. He was the guy that drove into McDonald's. Oh, and shot two years before '84. Yes, okay. and I will discuss him. Okay, later. good. But first, here is the list I got from Wikipedia, which I usually don't use as a source, but they're a good source if you're looking well, for a list. As Michael Scott on The Office once <laughs> pointed out, you know it's reliable because anyone who anyone? wants to come yes, put anything on there. They can. It's a pretty long list, but it's pretty. Are you going to say how many people died in each one? I think it tells me. Okay. But the two from Australia are interesting. December 17, 1926 in Adelaide. This was 1926, so he was ahead of his time. So mass shootings aren't a new thing. A fired postal worker, James Hanavan, shot and wounded two employees before committing suicide by shooting himself in the head. And this was at the Adelaide General Post Office. Then in December 1987, December 8th, Queen Street Massacre in Melbourne. Frank Vitkovic, former law student, entered an office building on Queen Street at 4.20 p.m. with the intent to murder a former school friend and kill as many people as possible before taking his own life. In the ensuing shooting spree, eight people were killed and five injured. Around 4.30 p.m., after the gun was wrestled from him, he jumped to his death from the 11th floor. Vitkovic's friend did not work for a postal department but for a credit union that was a tenant of the building. Most of the other floors were occupied by the offices of Australia Post, and most of the victims were Australia Post office workers. So that one doesn't count as like a postal worker going berserk. No, but he was still disgruntled. Yes. I wonder why he wanted to kill that guy so badly. I don't know. And, you know, kill as many other people. Like, what the fuck? Just kill the one person that's pissing you off. I know. I think that's going to be a recurring theme. Yeah. And then the one in Canada was actually in 1934. Wow. Rosaire Bilodeau, ex-carrier of the Quebec Postal Service, drove five of his family out in the woods in two trips and killed them. His family? He then took eight shots at Postmaster Morin, senior mail clerk, oh God, Moise <laughs> Jolicoeur, sorry for French people, I can't. Moise Jolicoeur? Yes. And divisional superintendent, Oscar Fisit killing Jocolaire. So he only killed one. He killed Jolli- his family. It's probably Jolicoeur, right? Is that the same as the name we have up here? Jolicoer? I don't know. J-O-L-I-C-O-E-U-R. Yeah, Jolicoeur. Yeah, they, they pronounce it all the... Who knows? No, they probably pronounce it. Uh, they probably pronounce it the French Hey, our French... Our, all our French... Uh, our Canadian listeners yeah, have to set us straight on They can set us straight. Okay, so here are the ones from the United States in chronological order. I'm ready. March 22nd, 1975, Gadsden, Alabama. Floyd Davidson, a 47-year-old postal employee, was charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the fatal shooting of Gadsden Postmaster James M. Ford and Postal Tour Superintendent Eldred Curtis McDonald. So two people? Yes. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Well, he was no, just I'm just, I'm just, yeah. Two. August 19th, 1983. They might not have counted that one. That was 75. Yeah. August 19th, 1983. Johnston, South Carolina. Perry Smith, 
a resigned USPS employee, USPS, U.S. Postal Service. Gotcha. I'll probably use that. Can I just say that was also the name of one of the killers in In Cold Blood? Perry Smith, that's right. I wondered why that sounded familiar. Maybe that's what made him mad. <laughs> now this is, okay, so this was 83. He charged into the Johnston Post Office with a 12-gauge shotgun and began firing at workers in the hall, killing the postmaster and wounding two other employees. December 2nd, 1983, Aniston, Alabama. James Brooks, 53, entered the Aniston, Alabama Post Office with a 38 caliber pistol, killing the postmaster. These poor postmasters. They're usually the ones that get killed. And injuring his immediate supervisor. Subsequent to killing the postmaster... James Brooks ran up the stairs of the building, pursuing a supervisor and shooting him twice. I guess he didn't kill him. Now, I want to tell everybody, I'm just reading these verbatim from Wikipedia. Okay. Just I just should give them credit. It's not my writing. It's easier than me write, rewriting it. Cause... I gotcha. March 6, 1985, Atlanta, Georgia. Stephen Brownlee, with 12 years of service, opened fire on the night shift in the Atlanta, Georgia main post office with a 22 caliber pistol and killed a supervisor and a co-worker, including wounding a third co-worker in the mail sorting area. November 15, 1985, Manitou, Oklahoma, Forrest Albert, F.A. Refner, oh, I guess they called him F.A., 39, entered the Manitou post office to check his elderly mother's mail when 74-year-old Arvell Pete, in quotation marks, Connor, entered the post office armed with a 38 caliber arguing with Refner before shooting him and killing him inside the main post office. August 20th, 1986, and this is the one I'm going to go into more detail. Edmond, Oklahoma. Patrick Shirell, a part-time letter carrier, entered the Edmond Postal Office and fatally shot 14 employees and wounded six. He subsequently committed suicide. See, now that was a biggie. The others were just a couple here, yeah. a couple there. Yeah. December 14th, 1988, New Orleans, Louisiana. Warren Murphy entered the New Orleans, Louisiana Postal Facility with a 12-gauge shotgun hidden under his clothing. Later, during his work shift, after an incident with the supervisor, he reportedly went to the men's room and came out brandishing the shotgun. Uh, is that a shotgun in your underpants? Or are you just happy to see me? Or are you just disgruntled? He, he then fatally shot his supervisor in the face. The fired shot reportedly wounded two other employees. After the shooting, he held his ex-girlfriend hostage. Later, two FBI SWAT agents reportedly were wounded upon finding Warren Murphy in a supervisor's office. He eventually surrendered to the agents. Hmm. He didn't kill himself. No. August 10, 1989. Escondido, California. John Merlin Taylor killed his wife, then two colleagues, and himself at Orange Glen Post Office. October 10, 1991. Ex-postal worker Joseph M. Harris killed his ex-supervisor and her boyfriend at their home in Wayne, New Jersey, then killed two former colleagues as they arrived at the Ridgewood, New Jersey post office where they all previously worked. According to Today in Rotten History, yeah. Harris was initially armed with an Uzi, grenades, and a samurai sword <laughs> and was later arrested after four and a half hour standoff with police garbed in the ninja outfit and gas mask. Now, police weren't garbed in the ninja outfit. No, he was. Okay. Uh, hey, I told you, it's not my writing. Okay. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Okay, November 14th, 1991, Royal Oak, Michigan. Fired postal worker Thomas McElvain killed four, wounded five before killing himself. June 3rd, 1992, Citrus Heights, California. Roy Barnes, a 60-year-old employee, went to the workroom floor at the Citrus Heights post office 
armed with a 22 caliber pistol and fatally shot himself in the heart in front of his co-workers. See, at least he just at killed least, himself. Right, right. I mean, that was pretty, like, passive-aggressive. Grizzly, but yeah. May 6, 1993, Dearborn, Michigan, postal worker Larry Jason, or, J- yeah, I think it's Jason, killed one, wounded three, then killed himself at a post office garage. May 6, 1993, Dana Point, California, Mark Richard Hilborn killed his mother, then shot two postal workers dead. Doesn't say if that was at a post office, but no. I don't know. December 1st, 1993, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Postal employee James A. Paulano was accidentally killed in a drive-by shooting. Nah, that's a uh, I had an X next to that one. Yeah. That one's... Is. March 21st, 1995, Montclair, New Jersey. Christopher Green, a former postal employee, killed four people, including two employees, and wounded a fifth at the Fairfield Street Branch Post Office. While this is a postal killing, the primary motivation appears to have been debt repayment and there was no indication that the former employee was mentally disturbed as a result of his former postal work mm. i don't know why they mentioned that on that one and the other one i don't, I don't well know. because it's wikipedia and anyone who wants to can post whatever they want on it <laughs> july 10th 1995 well wasn't part of and maybe you're going to get to this yes, later I will. but part of the thing like there were so many postal workers yes, just because yes, it's a high yes. stress job yes i will and, get to that later okay Sorry. Well, I'm just saying that might be why it said that. Yeah, I know. July 10th, 1995, City of Industry, California. Bruce Clark. Have you noticed no women? I have noticed that. Probably not. I was going to let it speak for itself. Uh, Bruce Clark, current employee and postal clerk with 25 years employment with the USPS, subsequent to an argument, punched his supervisor in the back of the head at the City of Industry, California mail processing center and left the work area. About 10 minutes later, he returned to the work area with a brown paper bag in his hand. Uh-oh. Upon being asked by a supervisor what was in the bag. That's a bad <laughs> question to ask. He reportedly pulled out a 38 revolver and at close range fatally shot the supervisor twice, once in the upper body and once in the face. Lots of supervisors Supervisors and here. postmasters, I know. Yeah. Two employees reportedly took the gun away from Bruce Clark and held him until police arrived. 75 postal employees reportedly witnessed the shooting. Wow. December 19th, 1996, Las Vegas, Nevada. 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 <laughs> I'm from Maine. <laughs> Las Vegas, Nevada. Former employee Charles Jenning went to the parking lot at the Las Vegas, Nevada postal facility and shot and killed a labor relations specialist. Mr. Jennings reportedly indicated in his statement to investigators that the labor relations specialist struggled to take the gun away from him and was shot in the process. September 2, 1997, Miami Beach, Florida, 21-year-old postal employee Jesus Antonio Tamayo shoots ex-wife and friend who he saw waiting in line, then killed himself. So mm, right. he wasn't a postal worker, yeah. just... They were in the post. They were, office. yeah, they Maybe were just in the... Waiting in that ever... The, the never-ending never line. Yeah. They were probably happy. <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> oh, don't say they that. They say, Too soon. I know. January 20th, 2006. Goleta, California. Former mail processor Jennifer San Marco, 44. Ooh, a woman. <laughs> killed six employees, five immediately, another died later. A seventh victim, a former neighbor, was killed first. Marker committed suicide at the sorting facility. April 4th, 2006, Baker City, Oregon. Grant Gallagher, a letter carrier for 13 years while on duty in Baker City, Oregon, reportedly went home and got his 357 Magnum revolver 
and drove to the city post office with the intention of killing the postmaster. Because mm. that's who you kill <laughs> That's first, who you go for first, right? Arriving at the parking lot, he reportedly ran over his supervisor several times. I know you didn't write it, but I wonder why they keep saying reportedly when obviously it happened. I know. Hey. But he, so he Wikipedia. ran over him several, several hey, times. Hey, if you don't like it, you can donate to them so they have better writing or mm. whatever. I, I don't, don't think that's what the money goes I for. I don't know what it goes for. Subsequently, he went into the post office looking for the postmaster. Not finding the postmaster, he returned to the parking lot and shot his supervisor several times at close range, the guy he had just run, run over. Run over. Poor guy. Ostensibly to ensure, oh, she, sorry, was dead. He reportedly then fired three bullets into the windshield of her car and three more in the hood. Why? I don't know. Killing the car. Yeah, okay. November 28, 2006. This is the last one in my list. San Francisco, California. Julius Kevin Tart, age 39, with 18 years of service, employed at the Napoleon Street Carrier Annex in San Francisco, went to his supervisor's residence armed with a revolver and shot her in the back of the head outside her house. He then reportedly left the scene and fatally shot himself in the head with the same gun the next day. So you wouldn't have to use reportedly because it's obvious he left the scene. That's true. Because he wasn't there. He wasn't there. still there. <laughs> said he left Not it, to but I don't know. It. I know. It is. So supervisors pretty much got it in almost yes. every single one of these. But I'm not done. Okay. Early in the investigation, homicide investigators were reportedly looking at... <laughs> now I'm going to just start adding reportedly. <laughs> looking at links between disputes between Julius Tart and his supervisor. No shit. Duh. Well, uh, That's where I'd start, Including <laughs> what one police official referred to as a discipline issue. Hmm. One of the homicide officials stated that there were indications that Julius Tart was dissatisfied with work and the supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> we should be laughing. But come on. Yeah. During, <laughs> during the time frame of the tragedy, he was absent from work and had called in sick the previous day. So that was the list. Quite wow. extensive. One woman on the list. Now, can I just ask you, so, so the list ended in 2006. Have there been any since then? Or was that ten-year period kind of the golden, the golden any. age of post office shootings? Apparently, two thousand it was twenty years for, from eighty-six to two thousand. Oh yeah, twenty. Years. But most That's of right. them were between early eighties, I guess, to mid right. to late nineties. So fifteen years, maybe. My uh, guess is that since nine eleven, especially, there's been a lot more awareness of workplace safety and stuff, yeah. and maybe that. Okay, so the first known published use of the phrase "going postal." was in the December 17, 1993 issue of the St. Petersburg Times. In his article, Violence at Work Tied to Loss of Self-Esteem, Carl Vick wrote, and I quote, The symposium was sponsored by the U.S. Postal Service, which has seen so many outbursts that in some circles, excessive stress is known as going postal. 35 people have been killed in 11 post office shootings since 1983. So this was written in 19... This is not part of the quote. This was published in 1993. So and he was talking about a, a symposium about... Apparently. It doesn't, it doesn't cite that. This is just a quote from the, okay. uh, out of context from the article. Okay. So there must have been I feel like kind of symposium. I feel like it was kind of a thing back then, even before, around that time, for us to say, wow, have you ever noticed all the postal workers yes. involved in these shootings? Uh-huh. Anyways, so back to the quote. 35 people have been killed in 11 post office shootings since 1983. The USPS does not approve of the term going postal and has made attempts to stop people from using the same. 
Some postal workers... I can imagine. Yes. Some postal workers, however, feel it has earned its place. Wow. So that's the end of the quote. And then the Los Angeles Times used the phrase a couple weeks later on December 31st, 1993, in a Year in Review article. And their quote is kind of weird. I can't understand the context of it, but I'm going to read it because I saw this quote in several places, and it's quoted the exact same way. So it's obviously taken out of a paragraph that it's not worth looking up, but unlike the more deadly mass shootings around the nation, which have lent a, a new term to the language referring to shooting up the offices going postal. I guess the, the um, that was the end of the quote, but I guess the important thing about that is that it's becoming part of the lexicon. Right, that even if you're not a postal worker or shooting up a post office, if, you, if you're disgruntled and, and you going go, on shooting shoot, go on a shooting spree at a workplace, you're going postal. The phrase was also used in the 1995 film Clueless, which no doubt helped spread the usage of mm, it. No doubt. Although at the time, the actors did not know its meaning or context. How could they not have? So it wasn't common usage yet. I know, I agree. I would think that the context would have been obvious because with the first time I heard it was probably about the mid-90s and I knew the context right. immediately. It, to me, the context was immediately clear the the whole concept of postal workers going getting pissed off and shooting up their workplace was by not, by mid 90s it well, was a, it was uh, almost a cliche a known yes yeah. exactly so i'll get back to some of the statistics about the postal workers and violence later but i will tell you now about Edmond Oklahoma and part-time mail carrier Patrick H. Sherrell. On Wednesday, August 20th, 1986, Patrick Sherrell punched into work at about 7 a.m., armed with three semi-automatic pistols and ammunition. The first person he shot was his supervisor, Richard Esser. Of course, because that's who you usually shoot first, unless you're going to go for the postmaster. Did he immediately shoot him? Yes, as soon as he came into work, he started shooting. In fact, the shooting was done by seven before 7.30. The 9-11 calls were like at 7.30 or so. He apparently sought out another supervisor, Bill Bland, but Bill had overslept that day and didn't get to work until about an hour later, so after the massacre was over, lucky mm. for him. Sherelle then went through the building shooting co-worker. After killing 14 and wounding six, he fatally shot himself. Patrick was one of those people who bitched all the time but also fucked up all the time, which I'm sure you've worked with people like that. I certainly we all have. have. Always blaming other people yep. for stuff they get when they get disciplined or something. Yep. It's always somebody else's and fault. And that's what people said about him. Although, Every day is a wine fest. Although some people said that he was picked on unfairly, some of his coworkers, but most of the others said that he was a pain in the ass. And he had been there well, six months. They are months. union workers. He was picked on unfairly. There's Yeah, we'll get to that. that. Okay. He had been formally disciplined several times during the 16 months he worked there. The most recent was the day before the shooting, and it was Bill Bland who disciplined him. Mm. He had been in the Marines and the Oklahoma Air Guard, and that's where he became a small arms expert. He was described as a socially awkward loner. Duh. <laughs> How many of these shooters aren't, I mean, mass shooters, come on, who could not hold down a job very long, he had previously worked as an electrical technician and a radio salesman. Although 16 months isn't that bad considering, you know, but it was a part-time job. He, like, filled in, I think, 
They said yeah. he was a mail carrier, but he filled in for other most jobs. Lot. Most jobs at the post office, you start part-time and wow. fill in before you get full-time. He was 45 years old and lived in the house he had lived in with his mother, who had died in 1978. He was a ham radio and gun... Now, he didn't, like, have her body preserved. No, okay. not that I know of. They didn't say that. But he was a ham radio and gun enthusiast, in quotes. <laughs> so, to me, that means nut. Yeah. Gun nut and ham radio nut. He had lots of the equipment in his house. Although two of the guns he used, he had stolen from the, apparently they were taken from the Air National Guard. So he, he must, well, when he was in the Air National Guard. I thought you said he was a Marine. He was a Marine and then he was in the Air National oh. Guard. Well, you know, when you're an enthusiast, the heart wants what it wants. I know. The neighbors called him Peeping Tom and Crazy Pat. <laughs> so I guess he did stuff to earn <laughs> the those. The neighborhood things. kids would taunt him by yelling Crazy Pat at him and he would chase them enraged down the street. Wow. He walked around at night looking in people's windows. But I said, who doesn't do that? I do that. I do that, but I don't go right up to I don't go right up to them when I'm walking around at night, even when I'm driving. Like, if someone has their lights on there, he's looking there. Not, not that it's about... Not to peep, not, not to Not curious. to put a gratuitous book plug in here, but I actually address that in my mystery novel, No News is Bad News. Oh, that's right, you do. Just walking around, you know, at night, looking in windows. Yes. People do Everyone it. does it. We, some people just admit it. He had threatened revenge to several co-workers in the previous month, although the official USPS report said there was no warning that he was going to do that. Well, it's one thing to threaten to tell your co-workers, oh, I'm going to come in and shoot this well, place Well, yeah, up. that was one quote. One of these days, I'm just going to kill them all, he said to somebody. And we've all worked with that guy. And he said, but, well... But I, that may not be considered official warning if I nobody's know. going to the boss I, and saying, you well, know, Pat says he's going to come he in here. He had said, I saw a woman being interviewed where he said something like, when I, when I get my revenge, everyone will know it or something like that. But the day before the shooting, he told a co-worker who had been kind to him, who was nice Aww. to him, that she should stay home the next day. See, now... But she didn't. She didn't get shot, but she did not stay See, home. now, if somebody who was a little on the edge said that to me, and they wouldn't because I'm not considered the nice co-worker, but it, let's say by accident they said it to me or I overheard them saying it to the nice co-worker, <laughs> that to me I would go tell someone. Although people would say there's Maureen I know. being all dramatic again. Well, see, I am the one that, believe it or not, I am the crazy magnet. I believe that. Um, not no, so much co-workers, but uh, customers. I believe that. And they... Never mind, it's too much. Everyone, Anyone that listens to this that works with me will, will back me up. They'll, they will. One thing he was disciplined for, I want to tell you this, there were a couple different things he was disciplined for that I was like, yeah, that's kind of douchey. Like he apparently left trays of mail, unsecured mail, in an apartment complex or something overnight. I don't know if it was in a mail room or something. It sounds like it's the kind of thing where he's where it's policy to do things one way. Yeah, and, and he another. he was late to work often, and he did. And it was funny because on Murderpedia, it was totally inaccurate. So no offense to whoever curates that site, but you need to work on your facts. It said that his disciplinary problems had nothing to do with his work performance, which is totally wrong because they did. Because right. but one of the things he did. He sprayed a dog with dog spray, which I assume is kind of like pepper spray or something for dogs, when the dog was five feet behind a fence. So someone complained because he's a fucking dick. Yeah, he is. Or maybe he had anxieties that included being so afraid of dogs that just seemed... No, I know. I'm just saying... He shouldn't be a fucking postman. I know he shouldn't. He obviously was a total dick. 
But on the other hand, he probably also had mental health issues. Obviously. But they were issues that maybe he was in the wrong job. I think I any say. job would be the wrong job. That's for true. Him, which he obviously found out. When huh. he started the massacre, after shooting a supervisor, the next victim was carrier Mike Rockney. Fun fact. If any relation to fun, Newt yeah, Rockney? He's Newt Rockney, Notre Dame coach. Former Notre Dame football well, coach. Yeah, dead. His grandson. Wow. Well, it was legendary Notre legendary. Dame football coach. Famous, as it said in one, in one thing, Which, but I know and, you don't like... In as fact, a, a movie... As an editor, you don't like the word famous. I don't. Well, I don't You don't dislike, think it's necessary. I don't... It, there are times when it's necessary. Like, if you say he was famous for shooting 14 of his co-workers, that's one thing. But if you say the famous football coach, either he's so famous... If he's famous, you don't need to say he's that's famous. True. If you need to say he's famous... He probably wasn't. But Newt Rockney, I just want to say his legend gave rise to another saying that probably isn't used that much anymore, a movie about him with Ronald Reagan in it, Win One for the Gipper. Yes. And that was very popular during the Reagan presidential and administration. This, and during kind of right right around the time of some of these shootings. Yes. This shooting, Reagan was, yeah, he was he still was president until 88. Okay. Yeah. So he chased fleeing co-workers and shot at Oh, them. see, that's always the worst. And he bolted doors so they couldn't get out. Wow. And then he sought out people who were hiding, like, cowering under desks Oh, and stuff, wow, that's the worst. And shot them. And there was one quote from a woman that was in, like, the next cubicle she was hiding, and she heard him shoot the person next to her, and she's like, I know I'm next, but then for some reason he went past her. Wow. Maybe and she was the one that was nice. He reminds me a little of Mucko from our episode yes. about Christmas killings. Ugh. Police showed up minutes after the shooting started and tried to communicate with Sherelle by phone and bullhorn for 45 minutes, but he was already dead probably towards the end now of that. Now he shot himself, right? He shot himself at the end. He went to the break room and shot a bunch of people, and that's where he shot himself. Oh. Which... I'm not going to say anything about, about the break, the break room. room. <laughs> I think anyone who's had break room experience <laughs> knows understand. exactly what you were going to say. Um, one of the 911 calls, one of the call, there were a few, quite a few 911 calls, obviously, because they probably all had phones. It's in an office. The person calling tells them he's dead. He's like the shooter's dead because they're like, is he still shooting? And they said, no, he's dead. But they don't know that right. the person calling isn't the shooter. So That's true. Kind of me. So I watched this documentary on YouTube that I found Ooh. very, very informative. I wouldn't actually call it a documentary. It's called The Steward, and it's in three parts, and it's about an hour. It's like two 22-minute parts and a 14-minute part. It follows Ron Blackwell, the union shop steward for that post office. And all it really is, it's not narrated or anything. It's just a bunch of news clips in chronological order from the local news and some national news. And it's mostly about him because... I wonder if it was produced by a union or something. I don't know. Was he a shop steward? Yeah, he was the shop steward for that. That's why it's called the steward. Yes, I know. <laughs> he was in the news a lot. I think partly because of his position. He wasn't an eyewitness to it, but he was there during the shooting. And um, he was featured in a lot of stories and on a lot of shows, and maybe because he was just accessible as well, and he's right. well-spoken enough. And he's one person who can speak to the guy's work history. Yes, because uh, he had he had represented him in disputes. And I have to say, as a former longtime union officer and steward, that you have to represent members no matter what they've done or are accused of doing, but I would think it would be really fucking hard 
Um, well, he, like, the first one interview I saw him on, I think it was it was on Larry King, and Larry King was quite a bit younger than, I forget, it's like over 30 yeah, years ago. Yeah, he's become increasingly reptilian. <laughs> I don't think he's on it like, anymore. Yeah. But he said that he had represented him in a couple things, but he didn't know him very well, and he didn't think he was that, you know out of the ordinary, whatever it was he was being disciplined for. One thing is that, and maybe it's the kind of steward who covers a lot of different workplaces instead of just one. No, I think he was just Just in that one branch. Because you know when you're a union rep, believe me, you know who the people are who are being disciplined. But I I don't think he had, he had several disciplined, but I don't think he had more than anyone else. I think he just took them, you know, it wasn't like he had constant ones. And they were saving up. This documentary, I guess that's what it is, but I mean, basically all it was was news stories and interviews and stuff just pieced together, which was actually very useful, I found, and It's still a documentary. And one of the um, postal executive type of people said that they were documenting and storing up disciplinary action. You know, they were keeping track of them because they were going to get rid of them. Right. But they, obviously, you can't just, especially when you're in the union, it's not like me, retail worker, that they can just get rid of me, fire me whenever they they want. No, they have to document. And And which is they should do. Yeah. I I would recommend if anyone's interested in this, it was an interesting documentary, and I'm going to talk more about stuff in it. We can put a link to it on our website. At the time of this massacre, it was the third worst of this type in U.S. history. The first was two years before James Huberty. Now by this type you mean mass shooting, not postal. James Huberty at McDonald's in San Isidro. Isidro killed. Isidro. He killed 21. And the second was in 1966, Austin, Texas, Charles Whitman. The Texas Tower Sniper killed 18. Sadly, there have been much worse in the past 31 years. (laughs) Sadly. There were only two that were worse than this, and now there are tons more. Orlando is the worst one that just happened last year, and I don't even know how is many Is it because of access to high-powered... And also just because anyone can get a gun. Virginia Tech. Well, that's what I mean. They Sandy can, Hook. You can... All of those were high-powered, you know, yes, like... Yes, they were. The Edmund Post Office responded to the shootings by cracking down on minor work issues like drinking coffee or other drinks at workstations, personal calls, personal whoa, conversations. Well, wait, they responded to the De- shooting yes. by cracking down on things yes. like drinking coffee yes. at your workstation? They started to be very strict with people about minor infractions. They didn't want people talking about, like, sympathy cards that they got. Like, they got a lot of sympathy cards delivered to the post office for the postal workers. They told people not to talk about those, and they mm. would get in trouble. They cracked on personal calls or conversations with each other. The Edmund Postmaster was recorded about six months later reprimanding workers about that stuff and saying, you know, you got to get on with your work and blah, blah, blah. What was the philosophy? I mean, especially, like, I'm really bothered by not drinking coffee at your workstation. They probably weren't supposed to be doing that anyway, that they just cracked down on them. I mean, I'm not supposed to drink stuff at my... We're Mm -hmm. not supposed to drink stuff at our desk. Well, that's because you're in the public... Well, maybe they could spill it on stuff. I'm just saying, I, I just it just seems to me that it's a strange response well, to a Well, when you're around shooting. machinery, you're not supposed to... Because they felt like... The, I think they felt like the problem was there was a lack of discipline among the workers, but that's what they did. And I don't know if it was overall in the post office. Anyways, he got demoted and transferred soon after. The, if, the supervisor? Yeah, the postmaster. <laughs> the postmaster. He obviously didn't get shot. No. About nine months later... Dodge that bullet. (laughs) Yeah. 
I know, I'm surprised. About nine months later, some of the victim's family members and others, including Ron Blackwell, went to Washington, D.C. to take part in a congressional inquiry into the shooting. The families and others also wanted to bring up issues about the U.S. Postal Service compensating victims and families, as in they were being very slow about it or not doing it. Wow. They wouldn't. They were supposed to pay for uh, funeral expenses. They weren't doing it. They were giving people the runaround. And Jesus. They were being assholes. Also, issues like not allowing time off for counseling and et cetera. They were. That's they that were is asshole. Being asshole. That was just going to lead to more disgruntlement. They didn't give a shit apparently, and they discussed security and hiring practices in, in these hearings, and they questioned why Patrick Shirell was hired in the first place, but. You know, he might have seemed fine on the... I mean, how do you know he's a nutcase? That's right. A lot of crazy people get hired at places. He had been in the military... Um, and he, it didn't say, it, I'm assuming that he was discharged honorably as a Marine because then he I'm was sure in he the Air National the Guard. I'm sure he passed the postal exam. And they did give preference to former military people. Yeah. So Congress reprimanded the Postal Service. I don't know if it really did any good. Yeah. Uh, they did a bunch of studies. And watching these news clips, it was interesting what a big deal the shooting was with 14 people. It was on the national news, and it was talked about and talked about, and there was a lot of news about it, you know, on the national level. But now it seems that that is almost... No, I would say shooting with 14 people would It would still would be big pressed. news, but it, people weren't as... People I mean, were, San Bernardino had about 14, right? But people weren't as... I don't know. It, it doesn't seem and People now, weren't as accepting. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if accepting then. is the right word, well, but... People were more It was more shocked. of a shock. Now it's kind of like, oh, another uh, one. Another one. One of my favorite things about this documentary <laughs> was Sadie, the male dog. Oh. So they follow this Ron Blackwell. Obviously, like I said, it's a, it's focused on him. So it shows all these news clips, but a lot of them have to do with just the shooting in general. But there are a lot that are about him and his route. Apparently, he's the was the go-to guy to follow around on his route. It was sometime after the shooting, this dog started walking along with him. She has a little basset mix. And he does the downtown route, I guess, and like 1,200 businesses a day, and the dog goes with him now. And Well, at the time of this, this was probably, this looks like it was like a year after the shooting, I think, that they did this story. And she has a little uniform, and she was very cute. Did she she belong to someone? It was very vague in the story. It was annoying. It said she doesn't belong to him. But she kind of belongs to the whole community. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, that does she actually sense. live somewhere? And that sounds like a reporter who didn't ask enough questions. No, But she was cute. Uh, the other thing I thought was interesting was the DA, who was on Larry King, and he was also, I saw him interviewed on the local news, that said, I just felt like, sh- wished I could shoot him myself, but he was already dead. And then he said, yeah. he, he was going on about Larry King, about how many deaths, how many people he's put to death and how he wished he could he felt bad that he couldn't put that guy to death Ah, uh, well I'm that's like, just who you want to have yeah, as a da somebody who's well, who's a, has a hunger and then to he was kill. upset because so many beautiful people were killed so he was a mass murderer himself yeah, or a serial legally. killer yeah only with the law behind him so you might assume that postal workers are more likely than other people to shoot up the workplace yes i would after hearing this report. In 2000, the U.S. Postal Service did a study that found that, quote, postal workers are no more likely to physically assault, sexually harass, or verbally abuse their coworkers than employees in the national workforce. And, quote, 
Postal employees are only a third as likely than those in the national workforce to be victims of homicide at work, end quote. However, it also found that, you know... Well, so they're comparing the postal service to every other job together. Yes. They're not, like, comparing the postal service to newspapers or the postal service to working for the banks or anything. No, they're doing it as... Yeah, well, that's that's... However, it also found that U.S. postal employees were six times more likely to believe that they are in danger from fellow employees. They were more likely to believe that they would be attacked at work and less likely to believe that their employer would take action against violence against them by non-employees, for instance, customers. That means their morale must have been pretty low. I I mean, that's a pretty bad environment to work in if you feel that way, whether it's true or not. They probably feel that way because of all the shootings. I know. And the the way their postal service dealt with it. Right. But the postal service doing its own study is an issue in itself. I know. And the fact and that I they're comparing, they they're comparing the hearings. postal service to every other job in the world, I mean in the country, is not, I, I can't know. think of the word, but you know it's not comparing apples to apples. No. The report also found postal workers were more likely to agree that managers and supervisors knowingly provoke violence at work, which I thought was weird. And I don't know what they mean. Like, do they tell them to fight each other? Yeah. I think that they, it <laughs> yeah, meant they that have cage fights to I think it meant that they, uh, that they behave in a way that makes people angry and violent. Yeah. You think they wouldn't, though, since they're the ones that are the victims. The U.S. Postal Service says the characterization of postal workers as violent is unfair. But, you know, that's the way it is. Right. When you think about it, it's a very small portion of postal workers who have yes. been involved in shootings. But there were enough in that 20-year period. Yeah, there that, enough. And it wasn't like there were so many shootings that these it's should have just blended in. There has been other research done, obviously, because uh, it's a phenomenon that people were interested in. The other research has found that homicide rates at post offices and postal facilities is lower than other workplaces. Retail is the worst at 2 Point one per 100,000 per year. I don't know this research, how current this research is. I think it was probably mid-90s, so... But, you know, retail doesn't surprise me because you've got... This research that I'm citing now is not counting employees against other employees. It's overall homicides, which retail, obviously, you know, liquor store people and stuff getting shot. Postal workers are only 0.22 per 100,000, so a tenth of retail. The average rate for all workplace deaths is 0.77 per 100,000. So the post office deaths are far below average, but they're still, you know. Is that deaths like homicide type deaths just or talking any about deaths? deaths? Like if you fall off a loading that was dock just talking and about break deaths. your neck, yeah. So, however, other, although other jobs have higher homicide rates, a congressional review in 1993, despite postal killings being only 1% of workplace homicides overall, 13% of workplace killings at postal sites were committed by current or former employees. Hmm. Not some random person yeah. coming in. Yes. And in other words, you may not be more likely to be killed at work if you work at the post office, but if you are, it's more likely that a co-worker is going to do it than if you work elsewhere. I don't know if that's comforting if you're at the post office or not. Well, you know, it's funny. No wonder they have that feeling that they're not safe at work. Right. I mean, and that I do adds, think you're right that it's the response. And if you're a paranoid person who's mentally ill, on top of that, that would make you more likely to go in and shoot if people. If it were me, and I were, and I had worked in that post office and had survived that, and the response was things like, "Okay, you can't drink coffee at your desk anymore," I'd be like, "What the fuck?" 
I'm yeah. I'm worried that Joe over there people, is going to come in and shoot and us people, up because he's such a fucking what, um, ticking time bomb. Peop- and you're telling me I can't drink coffee at my desk? That's how people were. I mean, that's how people reacted. They yeah. were pissed. Yeah. People were upset. And I remember at the time, it seemed like there were so many of them in a row, and they did do a lot of stories on them. And I remember postal workers saying, well, our job isn't that easy. People are saying stuff about us, and it's a, it's a bad environment to work in, right. and it's high stress. And I think part of the stress is not the job, and that's what people it's think. It's the way think, it's run. Yeah, people, I mean, I know with jobs I've had, my stresses at work don't involve the actual job itself or what I have to do, whatever the job is, whatever I'm doing, whether it's easy, hard, or it's the management and how things are handled and how difficulties are taken care well, of. That's the problem with well, most jobs. Well, put it jobs. this way, if you have a job, and there's a lot of jobs like that, it's not just the post office, and we both work jobs where... There's a lot of deadline-driven, high-pressure stuff to do, and on top of it, you have management that can't deal with things. It just compounds the stress. Ideally, you'd have, there'd be a smooth working environment, mm-hmm. and you'd feel confident about your working environment and the management and the ability to, to do your high-stress job with support and where things weren't just stupid and fucked up and we're going to make your job harder. But in a lot of cases, in a lot of workplaces, where there are a lot of jobs that are high stress, that are, like I said, deadline driven, there's a lot to do, you're dealing with the public or whatever. And then on top of it, you know that constantly during the day, shit is, stupid shit is going to happen yes. that doesn't need to happen because there's people with their head up their ass. Yeah making decisions maybe not even in your building or somewhere but way up the corporate ladder and that just not only compounds the stress and frustration but makes you feel as a worker that you don't count that nobody gives a shit about what you're doing that you're coming in every day and trying to follow the rules and work your ass off for the company and yet they don't give a shit and you can see how if somebody's already Mm -hmm. on edge that's what pushes people over the edge, not, see, not the yeah. high-stress things about the job where you're no. dealing with the public and all that, but the fact that you feel like, and even guys like him who are fucking up at work, feel like you're doing the best you possibly can and you come in on time because you get in trouble if you don't and all this yeah. other shit, and then there's people making decisions that are just making it harder for you and they don't give a shit and it about ki- what you're kills doing. Me that Meanwhile, you're making fucking $11 an hour. And it kills me that that a lot most of the people I work I've worked with and I've had a lot of jobs are hard workers and are just trying to do their job and it's amazing to me how many times your employer is preventing you from actually doing your job. Yeah. And it's so frustrating. It is. And you're like, you know, I I, I just, think everybody I know that show Undercover Boss is a lot of bullshit. Yeah. But I think everybody high up in a position should have to sit there for a week or whatever and do the job on the I'd floor love to see them or at the lower levels to see how the decisions they make have an impact on how the people that they're paying minimum wage or whatever are dealing with. And the customers. I mean, and the the public they're serving. But I would say since 2000, I'd be surprised if the majority of shootings, and maybe this is only the perception from coverage and stuff, weren't school-related. Yeah. College campus and other schools, and I guess things like like, there are. like Virginia Tech and, and it seems like there always and, were, and we we could yeah, do like one that's on what the song I don't like Mondays. Yeah, was. And, and she was, was she was before she it was, was a the girl. Seventies before her time, yep, I think it was like seventy six. It was I know that song was. Eight. Popular, I think, when I was like a freshman in college, yeah. 79, it was like 1980. But yeah. I think she was, for some reason, I think maybe 78. I can picture the girl too. She had blonde hair and glasses. Yeah. She had a she had a horrible life. Yeah. 
I think a lot of kids who do that do because that's an extreme thing. But one of the documentaries I started watching, but I gave up on it because it wasn't specific to this, was called Going Postal, but it, it focused mostly on school shootings. It was interesting. But it's school interesting. Would be an interesting it's one interesting to do that as well. the title of the documentary, going, I know. So, so basically, Going Postal is shooting someplace up. I guess so. But I don't hear the phrase as much now as you think we you'd used hear to. going like a school or like just shooting them up, big, shoot a big up. shoot up, shooting spree. Whee! God, it's so scary. I can't imagine. Uh, I was always surprised working for newspapers that we didn't see more of that. I know because people were a target. People get pissed. We do things that piss people off. We do know. things that piss off crazy people. And I'm just surprised. And you're always reporting that fake news all <laughs> the, the time. The fake news. We just <laughs> lie, making stuff making up. Stuff up. You don't know how many times I've had to defend the defend the I press know. recently. Well, I could go on and on about to that. Idiots. We don't. Yeah. But I'll just say I've in my 33 years in journalism, and I'm a third generation newspaper editor. I can count, and I've worked with hundreds of journalists over my 33 years in a number of papers. I can count on one hand and name the people who made things up. I know. And I have to tell you, it's not something that anyone takes lightly. And the other, the, the funny thing about a lot of the people talking about making things up these days is you don't have to make anything up because I know. things, <laughs> the person that's the loudest talking about this is somebody that there is video of tape of him saying things. I know. So it's not made up. It's easily provable. Yeah. The problem yet, is... The problem is people don't want to have to think for themselves, even when it's just... That's what they're counting on. Yep, and Anyways. that's the first step. But we don't want to get into all that. We've but you know what it's time for now? Our recommendations? No, Ask a Lawyer. Oh. <laughs> oh poor Matt. Oh, hi, Matt. Hey, yeah. Matt. So here's Ask a Lawyer. Okay, bye. And my question tonight is, why is it not double jeopardy to be tried separately in federal and state courts for the same crime? It sounds ridiculous on its face to do that. It sounds like a blatant violation of the double jeopardy clause. However, the U.S. Supreme Court, and I think we have to go back, forgive me if I can't give you an exact case citation, at this time, but I think we go back to around that whole law school education right down the toilet. But I think we have to go back to the mid 19th century, and the court gives somewhat of a dissertation on the concept of federalism. That is by living in the United States. This is the court's reasoning, not mine. Uh, living in the United States, you subject yourself to two separate sovereigns. And that's under the concept of federalism. One is you're, you've subjected yourself to your state's jurisdiction. And unlike, for instance, our neighbors to the north in Canada, where their criminal law is one federal criminal law. They do not have separate criminal laws in each province. Hmm. The I, US, didn't I didn't know that. Yeah, in the U.S. we have federal criminal statutes and then we have obviously all 50 individual states have their criminal codes. The, the idea, the concept, the theory is that under a state 
criminal statute, the state has sole jurisdiction. So let me give you the best example I can think of. That is, let's say someone in Cumberland County, Maine, is charged with being a prohibited person in possession of a firearm. Now, we don't use the term felony. We haven't since 1978 when we adopted the Model Penal Code. Mm. But felonies, basically, that's the concept. Felonies are any crime punishable by one year or more in prison. Below that, 364 days or less are called misdemeanors. A prohibited person can now also include a person who'd been previously convicted of a domestic violence crime, which would be a misdemeanor. So a prohibited person in possession of a firearm gets prosecuted in state court. Person has a trial, person is found not guilty. The feds also have a federal criminal statute under the United States Code that uh, has a list of prohibited persons being in possession of a firearm. <laughs> so the person on one side of Preble Street in Portland is found not guilty under state law, and then the next day is indicted and prosecuted on the other side of Preble Street in federal court for virtually the same exact elements. The same thing, but a different crime? A is different the, name? Yeah. Is no, it the it's same crime? It's a different sovereign. Oh, so different. That's the distinction. And under our system, our federalist system of federalism, the state is one sovereign, one okay. authority that has jurisdiction over that state crime under our state criminal law. And the federal has jurisdiction over the whole country, right? Or well, over uh, the whole country, yeah. exactly. So. But you go to one side of Preble Street in one court for the state crime, found not guilty. Now you go to the other side of Preble Street under a different statute with a different sovereign. So if, if you are first tried in a federal court, can they go back and charge you in a state court? Absolutely. They separate, can if separate, they wanted to. So, okay. Separate So sovereign. it's two totally separate things. Yep. It's like being... That sucks, though. Yeah. Well, I guess the I mean, lesson would be... I guess the lesson would be to not <laughs> hey, ladies, commit I'm any not, crimes. Ladies, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> no, I just, I just... Don't think, shoot the messenger. I, I, is this done often? No. I don't see it often. No. But sometimes let me, it's let like me give they you an, give an example. Let me give you all an example okay. that you might like. Okay. <laughs> okay. Do, yeah, did, try us. Did, okay. Did you ladies see the movie Mississippi Burning? Yes. yes. Okay. Based on a true story, right? Yeah. yeah. And those were some civil rights workers who I believe were from New Jersey. I may be wrong. They were from the north somewhere. Yeah. They were from the northeast corridor. students. Yeah, so. They were. They were Princeton students, and they were murdered in Mississippi. Right. Mm -hmm. Philadelphia, Mississippi, I think. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm, if we're thinking of the same guys. They were tried. It was uh, three civil rights workers yes. murdered. They were tried in the state court the defendants were tried in state court for murder as we know from the story it was pretty much a kangaroo court yeah. mm -hmm. they were found not guilty the feds then tried them for the same conduct but they tried them under the federal a federal uh, civil rights violation right and they were convicted and 
con which they obviously raised yes. pre-trial was double jeopardy. Yes. And the court went back to the mid-19th century and said, no, it's separate sovereign, got to face the music in federal court. Right. Well, that's well, well, thanks for, um, thank you. <laughs> so for our recommendations today, we're going to talk about not a specific thing, but as I think people around the country know Maine is the state we live in. People around the country know that, that we live in Maine. <laughs> no, but is actually a hotbed of good writing. Lots of writers. And Not just Stephen King and Richard Russo. Right, they're the famous ones. There's a group of mystery writers who blog daily at MaineCrimeWriters.com, and they're all writers who live in Maine full-time or part-time, and, and most of them write about Maine, though some don't. And it's all different types of mysteries, any, everything from cozies, if you know the genres, to thrillers, hard-boiled, uh, true crime, like one of them, Kate Flora, writes true crime, and mm. she has a mystery series. Yes. And so I just I just want to give a little plug for that to say people should check out MaineCrimeWriters.com, yeah. where it's a daily blog, and we each blog a couple times a month, and sometimes we have group blogs about all sorts of things having to do with Maine and writing and other things. But it's a good, if you're looking for something to read, if you're looking for um, mysteries, something new to read, it's a good kind of gateway to yeah, Maine you can, and its writers. If you, if you like someone's blogs, you can check out their work. Our bios are all on there. And, and there's, there's a lot of good uh, links to our website. Yeah, we're, there's fact, a lot of writers around there here. Are, I mean, and for instance, there's like Bruce Coffin, who's a former Portland homicide detective, whose series... Jerry Boyle. Jerry Jerry is no longer... He's like a, a, an emeritus member of the... But he's a crime writer in Maine. He is a crime writer in Maine. He's, he sometimes guest blogs on Maine crime writers, uh, but he's no longer on there. Brenda um, Buchanan. Brenda Buchanan. Former who, lawyer and journalist. She is, journalist. she is a lawyer and a former journalist. Jen Blood, who's going to be a guest on the blog sometime in the coming months because her new series... You mean on the podcast. Oh, yeah. she's a guest on the Jen blog. Blo oh. No, she's on the blog. I'm sorry. Oh. Who's going to be a guest on the podcast in the po coming months, and her series involves a um, tracking dogs. She's going to be a guest because we're going to talk about the Bennington Triangle in mm. Vermont where mysterious things have happened and people have Ooh. disappeared in the first book. In her new series deals with the Bennington oh, Triangle. Oh, that would be fun. So she's going to be... I like be, having guests. Yes, I mean, are. besides you, Matt. Well, Matt is like, he's almost like part of it. <laughs> so, so I'm just giving a little plug today for Maine crime writers. There's something there for everybody. There's a lot of good mystery writers in Maine. We have our annual conference. It's a day-long thing, but there's also the night before where we're honoring yeah. Tess Garretson. Crime Wave, which is April 21st and 22nd, and if you live anywhere in New England or are going to be in the area, it's great to check out. We have panels and seminars, books and for sale. it's fun. I go to it even though I'm not a writer because I enjoy it. Well, I think it's great for fans. I, I think, think it is. I find when I speak as a mystery writer, when I speak at libraries and things, people are always very interested in like the writing process yeah. and how things work, and this is going to be a good a, a nice you know it's just for a day so it's not something where you have to go and spend a weekend somewhere and i'm on a panel for debutante writers although i'm working on my third book there wasn't a crime wave last year so the people on the panel me bruce coffin dick cass who write jazz themed mysteries Ooh, that are kind of cool solo I act any of his. Bruce Karen, i think brendan riley whose book won the main 
Writers and Publishers Alliance Crime Fiction mm. of the Year last year are on it. And there's also other panels. There's very a lot of interesting things. And it's fun because it's a small enough thing that you can hang out with people, Yeah, you get talk to, to meet them. the authors and talk to them. They're and very accessible. And very nice. accessible. And, nice I, and one great thing about the main writing community... I found is it's a very collegial, friendly group of yes. people, very open and generous. They love talking to and people. And they're very who like supportive writing. of each other, from the, what I've seen. I mean, I'm an, I'm not a writer, I'm an outsider, but I, I'm a hanger on kind you of. You are. You're, a, you're like a groupie. A, well, not, you're not I'm, really a groupie because you're my sister. I'm your assistant. Yes, you're my posse. <laughs> you're my entourage. entourage. Yeah. <laughs> you're your bodyguard. But yeah, I mean, Everyone seems to be supportive of each other, and I haven't noticed any competitiveness. or No, there really isn't. There's no, no backbiting or... I mean, um, there really shouldn't be, but sometimes there isn't, you know. And, and our blog is fun because you can pretty much write about whatever strikes your fancy. The, our slogan on it is living and writing in the great state of Maine, but mm-hmm. we write about all sorts of stuff, Maine-related, writing-related or not. It's such a diverse group of people, you know, Maine-diverse, not like you know, UN diverse. Yeah. But I'm just throwing that out there as a recommendation for people to check out. Yeah, I second that recommendation. And we're hoping to have, over the course of the year, occasionally guests from the main crime writers on the show to talk about either their books, if they have a book coming out, or topics that we think they'd be at a lot to, like Jen is going to be on. We, We don't have a date set for that yet. But we'll have some other ones on, too. They're they're always a fun group to yeah. have and have a lot of interesting things to say. And then you and wouldn't have to, to listen to, to us. <laughs> time. So I guess this is the end. Oh, so iTunes. You can rate and review us on iTunes. Yes. You can find... If Even you wanna, if it's a bad review. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, whether it's on iTunes or Android or our RSS feed... You can go to crimeandstuffonline.com, which is our website. Yes. And there's a subscription page that has all the different ways you can subscribe. You can also donate through Patreon. You can see our cool mascots for each tier. Yeah. You know, it's $2 a month, $5 a month, and mm-hmm. you're going to get some cool merch not right away. <laughs> well, soon, soon. We're figuring that part well, once out. Once we get the merch all set. But we could use some reviews and some ratings. Yeah, that doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't. To review us, rate us. We also have a Gmail address. You can contact us through the website, through yeah. Twitter, on our Facebook page. Yep. You can message us through our Facebook page or Gmail, Crime and Stuff. And like us at on Gmail. Facebook, too. And if you have a question, if you have a topic, you can tweet we want to look at, at us. If you have comments, we'd like to start doing a mail segment. If we get mail, we can actually <laughs> read online. Uh, I mean, on the air. <laughs> on the air, so to speak. Anything else? No, but we'll be back next week. Yes, and next week you're doing something. I am doing something. Yes. Do you know I what am. yet? Well, you're just going to have to find out. Okay. I can't wait. Uh, it's going <laughs> to be awesome. Okay. Okay, I guess that's it for this Bye. week. Bye-bye. Just bye-bye. And we even had a um, at my job. Someone's at the door. Should we answer?